is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. CDC says one thing, now children's doctors saying another when it comes to masks at schools. American Academy of Pediatrics recommending all kids two years plus wear masks at school regardless of vaccination status. Different from what the CDC says. We'll get into why the recommendation is uh, contrary to the guidance. President Biden says vaccine misinformation on Facebook is killing people. Is he right? Happy Freedom Day if you're in the U.K. Or uh, is it a happy Freedom Day? The Olympics start in a few days. At least they are supposed to. But COVID threatens to derail things. We start, though, with the masks at the schools. Dr. Nathaniel Beers, pediatrician, Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C., author of the American Academy of Pediatrics Guide on School Reopening. So, doctor, there's been um, criticism of this already. People say, hey, you know, if the kids are vaccinated, they shouldn't have to wear masks. We're going to say that the current vaccination rates, uh, or even those one over, um, are uh, low to pick up. Uh, slower than we would have all liked. Uh, And based on that assessment, as well as the data coming out around the Delta variant, uh, as well as the challenge that schools will have in appropriately determining who was vaccinated and who wasn't, uh, that we felt like the best recommendation was uh, to recommend that all students, staff, uh, and teachers all continue to use face coverings or masks Uh, until uh, such point as we really truly have control over the virus uh, throughout all the communities. Does doing that just make it easier to get the kids back in school instead of at home because we have fewer questions, we have fewer things to deal with if everybody just masks up from the beginning? It's about building trust for parents, right? Knowing that their child, regardless of their own risk, is going to be safe in schools. Uh, as well as building trust in our teachers, who uh, many of whom uh, have concerns about safely returning to schools, particularly not knowing whether or not their students are vaccinated or not. You used an interesting term in passing there uh, about the need for these uh, kids and teachers uh, to wear masks. You said until we have control over the virus. What's your definition? Well, I think we've got immense Uh, intellectual knowledge in this country and the pediatric side, as well as the broader public health side, who've been uh, reminding us that uh, those individuals who are unvaccinated need to continue to mask, and those individuals who are eligible for vaccine need to continue uh, to get vaccinated. Um, And until such time as we see uh, people making those choices uh, consistently across the board, um, in a regular way that is driving down community spread, Levels that uh, suggest that there's widespread uh, virus in the community. Uh, we continue to believe that the best course of action uh, is to make sure that everyone is as safe as possible, uh, knowing how important it is uh, for students to return to school, given all of the data that we now have on the impacts when kids don't go to school. That could end up being like a really long time, though, because if the unvaccinated haven't gotten vaccinated yet, you know, the one school of thought is that they're just not going to get vaccinated. Yeah, and I think that uh, the question becomes one of sort of what does the normal endemic state of of, uh, COVID look like and and how do we manage through that? And I think uh, we're starting to see that in some communities where they do have uh, uh, good vaccination rates, uh, that this becomes a a disease of those who are unvaccinated. And so how do you uh, acknowledge that 
uh, in schools at least, the vast majority of, of children since uh, uh, under age 12 are ineligible for vaccine. Um, and even those 12 to 18 who are in schools, uh, we've seen a highly variable uptake in the vaccination rates. Uh, and need to continue to have time for pediatricians uh, to have uh, conversations with families and students uh, about how uh, they should be approaching this vaccine moving forward. This could go on for years. Uh, We've already had it go on for years, right? We're in year two at this point. And so certainly uh, what we see is that uh, kids uh, across the ages are able to wear masks easily uh, when they are supported by adults. Uh, and encouraged by adults. And so uh, we should uh, make sure that that is not a variable that keeps kids from returning to school uh, because they are not uh, able to uh, or not uh, required to wear masks in schools. Dr. Nathaniel Beers, pediatrician, Children's National Hospital, Washington, D.C., wrote the American Academy of Pediatrics Guide on Reopening Schools. President Biden uh, lashed out at Facebook recently, saying all the vaccine misinformation on the social media site is killing people. He then backed away from it a bit. Yeah, but his information totally out of control. Renee DiResta, technical research manager at Stanford Internet Observatory. So, Renee, where are we here? Facebook says, you know, we do a lot. We say this is a post from a government agency. This is a fact. But then everybody else is on there just posting whatever they want. Yeah, well, you know, it's a really nuanced argument, and it's uh, a time when we are not very good at having nuanced conversations. Uh, Part of that is actually because the information environment doesn't really lend itself to nuanced conversations, because as you've noted, depending on which part of the political spectrum you're getting your news from, you're seeing things that are very, very different. Depending on what social media groups you're part of, you're seeing something very, very different. And so this challenge, this question of how do we kind of come to consensus about uh, information that is really critical to public health, like taking the COVID vaccine is a a really huge challenge. And this is why the Surgeon General put out that advisory, uh, arguing that this is sort of a whole of society problem at this point. Is is part of the problem uh, in just over the past few days, seeing how Facebook has, in some cases, and by some measures, maybe hasn't responded, it does come across as being, uh, I don't know, arrogant. Well, I mean, there is uh, <laughs> that's definitely true to an extent, right? The one of the reasons that the anti-vaccine movement was able to grow and to network in the ways uh, that it has is because of social media companies sort of facilitating the ability for everyone to connect with everyone else. This is a really profound power, and in most cases, this is a really wonderful thing. There are at the same time there are these kind of negative externalities, these unintended consequences, where recommendation engines for many many years were referring people into anti-vaccine groups. Anti-vaccine organizers were paying to run ads on Facebook and other platforms to encourage people to join anti-vaccine groups. And then those groups were being kind of connected through this complex series of recommendations. That was happening for a period of years. And so there is a very foundational responsibility in how those groups were connected and how they were able to grow. And social media does bear responsibility for that. But at the same time, The anti-vaccine movement did not originate on social media. Anti-vaccine attitudes have been around in America since the 1800s, since smallpox variolation, actually. And so it is also unfair to argue that social media companies cause anti-vaccine attitudes. That's not an accurate statement either. I guess the reach, though, is way further than it's ever 
been right and there's the what the new study that shows there's there's 12 personalities online that are responsible for most of the dissemination of the misinformation and that can go way further than you could get it in previous you know years and decades i mean you could have your your online group or whatever but now you share something and it's millions and millions of people it's across the world in 30 minutes right and and part of that is actually because as the surgeon general's advisory notes people serve as distributors of information are like we all have power when we click that share button we're saying this is information that resonates with me and i want my community to know about it so that's a really interesting and unique dynamic that's that's pretty unique in in human history i would say on the subject of the 12 accounts producing a vast amount of anti-vaccine content that is very very true but one of the things that we've begun to see is that there are anti-vaccine claims that are falsifiable they're rooted in misinformation about the science of the vaccine, its efficacy, its safety, what's in it, its ingredients, these sorts of things. Uh, There are also claims that are made that ignore all of that, that are not really falsifiable, that just say, I think vaccination is, you know, and then fill in the the blank for whatever your, your kind of political motivation is. So you'll see that political attitude of vaccine mandate is government tyranny, uh, being required to have a vaccine for work is unfair. These are more political positions. And we've seen a lot of uptake in those claims, those kinds of, you know, things that are not misinformation, they're not falsifiable, but they've been really picked up and amplified by very, very prominent conservative influencers at this point. And so oftentimes people will hold that opinion. And then as they look for information, they find people who hold that opinion, who also then in turn are spreading the misinformation, the sort of demonstrably falsifiable or fake information about the ingredients and the safety and the efficacy. So you kind of come in through these arguments about liberty that sort of resonate with you on a personal level. And then oftentimes the groups that facilitate that are very welcoming to you know, these, um, these members who are then also in turn spreading the, the false claims. So the question is, what do you do about that dynamic? Well, you know, the as you know, the the chorus uh, clamoring for some sort of uh, government regulation, it has gotten louder in recent uh, months. Uh, is COVID going to be the catalyst that's going to lead to that more government regulation? You know, that's a really excellent question. There's so many different types of regulatory conversations that are going on. There are some people who are arguing about um, what the impact of social media data, you know, data gathering and targetability, right? Privacy, the fact that, uh, that people can add target to people who are likely to believe certain types of misinformation because the platforms enable that through their, uh, through their instrumentation, through all the information that they have about us. There are people who are arguing that we should be regulating from an antitrust perspective, that one of the problems is that having all of the people in one place and, you know, it, makes, it becomes, um, very difficult to create new social environments that maybe are potentially healthier or have a better discourse because the network effects are keeping people in the kind of um, playground of the big behemoths. So there's an antitrust argument that has a variety of different kind of factors, but, um, but that comes into play too. We don't want to see government regulating particular types of content or particular types of messaging, right? That would be inappropriate. You don't want to see the U.S. government taking a position on particular topics related to speech. But at the same time, there are things that are beginning to happen. The FTC, for example, is beginning to look at some of the economic motivations of anti-vaccine movement leaders, many of whom sell supplements or information products. And they're beginning to say, hey, are the people who are 
pushing COVID misinformation to drive people towards homeopathic vaccines, is that a dynamic? Homeopathic vaccines don't work, by the way, they're nonsense. Uh, but is that a dynamic that we need to be thinking about in, in our understanding of um, how we should be regulating the kind of um, harmful information that maybe is taking hold within communities as opposed to policing speech on the Internet writ large? Renee DiResta, Technical Research Manager, the Stanford Internet Observatory. Renee, thanks. Coming up after this short break, Freedom Day, but no liberation from the virus in the U.K. Today is Freedom Day in Great Britain. Everything is opening back up, but things are hardly normal. Yeah, cases are surging. And then the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, isolating because of an exposure he had. Dr. Zeshan Qureshi is a pediatrician and global health physician at King's College Hospital in London. So, Doctor, how concerned are you about this uh, reopening day? I am very, very worried and very, very cynical. We are swarming in coronavirus Loads of people are not vaccinated. Cases are going up. Hospitalizations are going up. Deaths are going up. And yet we are opening up the country again. It seems incredibly short-sighted. And it will only be a matter of time, I feel, before we pay the price. Well, you you use the word um, short-sighted. I'll substitute the word insane. Is it? I mean, scientists across the world have made it quite clear that what is going on in the UK feels like an unethical experiment. We are a country that are getting the most new cases in the world at the moment, and yet we are at the forefront of liberalising things. Our prime minister is, like you said, isolating right now because even he isn't able to be protected. I understand how people are fed up, but we've learned time and time again that if we rush easing of restrictions, then they become inevitable later down the line. We need to get the virus under control. We need to vaccinate more of the population. And only then can we look at this post-pandemic world. Yeah, remind us where you guys are with vaccinations, because here we have the problem of having a whole bunch of them, but a whole bunch of people who just won't take them. (laughs) The UK has been really good in terms of the vaccination drive, and 87% of the adult population have taken at least one dose of the vaccine, but In terms of the overall population, only around 50% of people have been double vaccinated. And a lot of the very high risk populations in terms of being indoors, in terms of poor ventilation, in terms of being in contact for a long period of time, are not vaccinated yet. So I feel quite anxious. There's lots of things that we could do that are long-term investments before we open up around vaccination, around improving ventilation, but it simply hasn't been 
considered yet. You know, Mike just mentioned that uh, here in this country we have a, a problem, and it is a problem, of people who have all kinds of reasons why they don't want to get vaccinated. They're waiting for, you know, more information, whatever that means. Uh, do you have a similar problem in the U.K.? Uh, are there lots of people who just say, no, we're not going to get it because we don't trust the government, because uh, we're waiting for more information, we're waiting for the Queen to say it's okay? I mean, what? <laughs> This country has been very good in terms of recognising that people understandably are hesitant about new treatments and there have been strong campaigns to just try and understand what the concerns are and to have community drives to, to change those things. We've had incentives for people to be vaccinated as well, like, for example, potentially winning um, European Championships tickets um, by by getting your uh, vaccine. We've also had drives to get people who you know aren't registered that might be illegal immigrants getting vaccines with no NHS number being expected. The reality is we have to be pragmatic about it. We don't force people to take vaccines. We have to persuade them, incentivize them, give them opportunities. And it's been effective in my book. Dr. Zeshan Qureshi, pediatrician, global health physician, King's College Hospital in London. By royal decree, the vaccine, right? Yeah. <laughs> COVID threatens to upend the Tokyo Olympics, which start in just a few days already. Several athletes have tested positive and they are out. No fans, and then uh, not any of that excitement added in either. So how much trouble are the games in? Barry Sanders, director of the LA 2024 Bid Committee and a chairman of the Southern California Committee for the Olympic Games. So Barry, doesn't seem like things are off to an awfully good start. Well, I certainly can understand why you'd conclude that. Uh, it's, it does seem that the games will go on. Uh, and uh, it also does seem, as you say, that things are just more downbeat than they traditionally are going into the games. It's true that in the weeks leading up to any Olympic Games, there's a lot of negative coverage. They'll talk about potential boycotts or possible terrorism or incomplete venues. And this time, of course, it's COVID. But even taking that typical negative coverage into account, and I might add that that coverage seems to disappear miraculously when the games begin and the focus is on the athletes, and maybe that'll happen again. But it does seem more downbeat than usual. And you're left to speculate why. I think the audience can speculate as well as I can. Um, certainly postponing the games, postponing anything is deflating. And these games have been postponed for a year. That takes a lot of oomph out of things. There's not going to be any crowd there at the games, no audience. And frankly, it's become a TV show many years ago. So the audience is sort of supplemental, but it's a supplement that adds excitement, just as it does on any television show. There's a human love of a crowd that's part of a celebration. And that'll be missing, even though I'm sure skillful television producers can yeah but but what but very what, what it, it may be missing but what's not missing are covid infections i'm just looking at a headline that over 60 covid infections are now tied to the olympics game in tokyo that's definitely not good and we can probably expect more you get yes, that many absolutely. already and yeah. it's just gonna go right up. yeah covid isn't going away those are not all athletes of course it is a handful of them are athletes they do have they do have extensive 60-page protocols on how to keep the athletes isolated, what they do when someone tests positive, athlete or not. 18,000 
journalists, athletes, and and coaches, and so on have have been in Tokyo for the last few weeks, and others will come and go as as, as the games go on. So the number sixty is troubling, but it's certainly not too high to to really affect the games going on. Uh, the the issues they face are are somewhat even greater, I think, in terms of why people feel downbeat. We certainly haven't seen the buildup to the games that you usually see commercially. The uh, Maybe it's because NBC and the other networks aren't as dominant as they were in terms of viewership with all the streaming. Certainly the sponsors who paid fortunes to sponsor these games haven't been advertising in the amount they usually do building up to the games. I suppose those advertising commitments would have had to be made months ago, and there was so much uncertainty. I'm sure they cut back. But more than that, the games are out of sync with the public mood. And that's where we get back to your comment on COVID. There just doesn't, not just in the U.S., but worldwide, there's just no feeling that it's time for a celebration. The games are always a celebration. And then there's one other thing that's much more worrying to the Olympic movement, worrying even to our LA 28 games. And that seems to be that the games are increasingly identified with another era, out of sync the mindset of so many people among us now, sort of not the the flag waving and the nationalism isn't something that people are looking for right now. And that's a question of whether that is a lasting impact or whether that's just momentary, but that's affecting it too, not just COVID. Barry Sanders directed the uh, L.A. 2024 bid committee, chairman of the Southern California Committee for the Olympic Games. Barry, thanks. Speaking of the Olympics, the athletes in the Olympic Village will sleep on beds made out of cardboard. Now, to be fair, it's not cheap cardboard. The bed frames can hold up to 440 pounds. The athletes have been posting pictures on social media, and there is a rumor that the beds were designed to prevent intimate activities so athletes do not spread COVID by inviting others in their rooms. I think they're talking about sex. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. what I think they're talking about. Yes. This is a, we're all adults here. Yeah. I mean, Unless you're a child it. and then right. go ask your parents. Exactly. The idea is that the bed frames will break <laughs> if there are certain movements. Japanese officials say that's not true. They say the frames are made of cardboard so that they can be recycled into paper products after the Olympics. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.